The Outside Interview is brought to you by Health IQ, a company that helps you save money by working out. For Robbie, my co-producer on the show, working out means cyclocross. <laughs> Read this. So I ambushed him at the end of a race. As best you can. Everyone knows that life, insur- <laughs> that life insurance companies raise your rates for things like smoking and obesity. Why don't they lower your rates for things like cycling and running? That's where Health IQ comes in. Advocating for people who make healthy choices. They start by gathering information on your lifestyle and then use that data to negotiate a rate with the insurance company. They offer a variety of special rates on life insurance. So the healthier you live, the more you save. To learn more and see if you qualify, visit healthiq.com outside. That's healthi-q.com slash outside. That That's was, that was great, <laughs> except for the URL. URL. No one is gonna find okay, the site. Try that again. <laughs> to learn more and see if you qualify, visit healthiq.com/outside. That's healthiq.com/outside. Awesome. That was mean. Just because I found you in a moment of pain. Yeah. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. Test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. Talk about Conrad Anchor the Climber, and you have a whole list of accomplishments to choose from. First ascents throughout Alaska, Utah, Yosemite, Antarctica, Pakistan. A first ascent of Meru Peak in the Himalayas. In 1999, he even recovered the body of George Mallory, last seen 800 feet from the summit of Everest though no one knows if he ever made it up there. Anyway, looking at Anchor's accomplishments can make him seem sort of superhuman. But talk about Conrad Anchor the man, and this towering figure becomes life-size pretty quickly. Later in 1999, he lost his climbing partner and best friend, Alex Lowe, in an avalanche. Back home, he married Lowe's widow, Jennifer, and raised their three sons as his own. I don't know what to call that, except human. And with a family, he started questioning which risks he was willing to take on the mountain. And the answer seems to be less of them. Outside editor Chris Kyes talked to Anchor about his journey from unknown dirtbag to elder statesman of the climbing community. A transformation that now has scientists studying him. It seems like everyone wants to know how Conrad Anchor became Conrad Anchor. Here's Chris. So you just returned from a, a, a climb on Kilimanjaro with the, the Mayo Clinic. Tell, tell us about what you guys were looking into for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Kili at um, it's 5,800 meters, 19,300 feet. And the Mayo Clinic is looking to study how um, the human body performs uh, with a lack of oxygen and an increased heart rate. So, um, And those are the two things that when people... Um, as they get older, they're, they have a problem breathing. They can't breathe well. And, and so how do we measure that? And how does the human, what are ways that we can improve um, the ability for people to breathe? Um, so that, that's kind of the, the underlying science. So we then took it to Kilimanjaro and set up four testing stations. At each testing station, uh, pretty elaborate, running... Um, blood tests to stress tests to lung volume, um, oxygen diffusion, a lot of um, ways that test the, uh, the lungs on that. So working with Bruce Johnson, uh, the same fellow I was with in uh, 2012, and we had a 
26, myself included, large, uh, 26 of us that were in the uh, test subject, so able to see how our lungs um, and hearts perform at altitude. If you have large volume lungs and you have a good perfusion in that you can expose a good portion of your lungs to oxygen each inhalation exhalation you'll do well at altitude um, light exercise helps with acclimatization so if you get to say a new camp at 16,000 feet you're feeling the blahs a little bit of malaise get out and do some light exercise that'll help oxygenate your blood so that was we did see that on the um, in part of the testing and so you've been poked and prodded and tested a number of times, and, and has most of that revealed that you have um, a certain um, abilities at, at, at altitude that a lot of us don't? Whether I was born with them or I've self-selected and trained those skills to mm -hmm. do well at altitude, we, we're still, still a conversation that we have. Um, I think that a couple things when we were on Everest and I climbed it without supplemental uh, oxygen it was um, I basically hadn't eaten for a couple days I had half a liter of, of bad coffee and some top ramen that's what I did it on and mm -hmm. so um, there's having a high pain threshold and a high degree of um, determination stick with it uh, so the mental aspect really what we're understanding is it plays more and more into it so um, the people that do well, oftentimes, um, they're just they hold fast to their program, and they're not going to give up. So, what are your what do you what's your first memory of climbing? First memory of climbing would be though the pack trips that we took in the Sierra. So that was always my dad's idea of good fun, and my mother came along because she enjoyed it, and that was. Uh, Every summer for two weeks, we'd do these pack trips and get dropped off on 108 and be picked up uh, on Highway 120 or vice versa, but basically between those two in the Sierra Nevada. So it was between Tuolumne Meadows and Kennedy Meadows. And that whole region was where we always went. And yeah, it was great. It was a beautiful place, a great experience as a young person to be introduced to the mountains. My grandfather was more of a hunter. My dad was a peak bagger, but not technical climber, but or by the age 14 or something I'd been his buddies and we got out and did a little bit a little bit more adventuring from hiking up mountains like you can in the Sierras to uh, roped climbing and then at age 16 going to Mount Rainier and climbing there so um, so you get to Salt Lake you said you took a year off as, 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 between high school and college and and you based yourself in Salt Lake yeah I was Basically, uh, couch surfing and. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of your real dirtbag days. Yeah, I had a, a, a VW square back, and so I couch surfed and I lived in a tent underneath the trees. And <laughs> <laughs> where was the where were where were these trees? Where was this tent? Where it was uh, at the base of uh, Park West, which is now the canyons, and. Uh -huh. I went back there and we called it the Tris Arbalis, the three trees, three pine trees. And <laughs> so I had like a VE24 tent. It was like my prized possession and in the sleeping bag. And I lived in there and was um, every now and then I'd find a friend that I could get a shower with or well, living a simple life, I guess. And <laughs> but I went back and now it's 
after the Olympics, that ski area really there's yeah. there's a condominium at that where those trees used to be. So yeah, nice. And was there anybody else back there camping with you, or you just found this little spot for yourself? I was the only one in the spot. So, yeah. um, but St. Seth Shaw, he was. That's where we first got to know each other, and he he was a year. He'd been dirt bagging a year longer than I, and he'd like by time and hierarchy been able to move into a room so <laughs> it was just hard to find a place to live and I was like wow I don't have four hundred dollars or two hundred dollars a month or whatever it was going to cost for rent so about that time in 1983 I started working at the Hoyu Bar which was a retail store that was um, eventually purchased by the North Face so that was my beginning with uh, North Face was Okay. At the Holly Bar store. So Holly Bar stores were. Roy Holly Bar had a uh, sew at your own down vest. Those things were big in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My sisters had them. I remember them sewing. So, hey, what is this? A sew at your own down vest. So it was like you get a kit? Yeah, Frostline yeah. and Holly Bar, they were like the two big outfits. And so you'd mail out, order this away, and you'd get a plastic bag with a down that would go in this compartment. and it would uh, so you'd get all the components so you'd sew it yourself <laughs> I'd obviously sew it yourself guys aren't advertising an outside magazine <laughs> no, <I guess> not. <laughs> people buy it finished and ready to go at this stage yeah <laughs> okay so you were working there and that was your first uh, connection to the North Face yeah that was uh, was sort of the, the start of it in their retail store so and when did you when did you get the, their attention as a as a professional climber they started their team in the late 80s is that right yeah they had, had athletes um working with them ned gillette was a great mm -hmm. example and his ski tours and the sea tomato expedition some of those things that he had, had done but um yeah it wasn't until about 92 87 i was able to beg and plead my way into a, a the mountain jacket and the sleeping bag for a trip to the Kachatna. So uh -huh. I was living long. That was, that, was the, that was the good life. Oh, then. man. <laughs> they sent me a sleeping bag. I'm not worthy. <laughs> so Did the role of a professional climber really exist back then? Did you have role models of, of guys that you wanted to be? There were pro professional climbers in Europe. I mean, there's, I mean, this is by 84, Messner had climbed all the 14 8,000 mm -hmm. meter peaks. And so there was certainly a, um, that was sort of growing in that sense, but um, yeah, the um, not really in the states. We were there. We always eked out a living to to be a pro climber, but we weren't necessarily um, where it is today. But starting around '92 at uh, the North Face, so that was um, with the uh, Bill Simon was the um, running the company at the time, and is very knowledgeable man when it comes to mountains and mountain history and whatnot and so he empowered us to create a, a program so Greg Child and Lynn Hill, Alex Lowe, um, Dan Osman we did a trip together in 1995 that was sort of the one of the first times that a brand had like paid for a very specific expedition mm -hmm. so we went to the Aksu in Kyrgyzstan and 
how did things change at that point? Did you or did you were you aware of any change in the difference between being a professional climber and representing a brand versus the days of you know having a couple cans of peanut butter and Bisquick and being able to be a dirtbag climber and go wherever you want? It was pretty much the same. I mean, we still had jobs. I still was. Of, um, doing carpentry work in between to make ends meet. So it wasn't like we're, it was like a huge thing. But about 92 was when I chose not to work as a mountain guide and to focus more on um, and working with a specific brand. And that was a nice thing. So it's, I've always enjoyed product, whether it's hard goods or soft goods. And hence my job at college at a gear shop rather than at a restaurant or some other college type job. So. I was happy to make that transition. It, initially, it took a while because everyone was like, oh, we do, we go in the outdoors because we love it, not because we're getting paid to do it. So yeah. there was that initial pushback, but, um, and good people, people should be compensated for what they do. And if they're, um, if you want to live the simple life and, and, and ride your bicycle from climbing area to climbing area and climb the hardest routes and, and do so without a whisper, I'm, incredibly respectful of that and, and that's the beauty of climbing is you can go that direction or you can go the opposite direction and be a, a social media darling and, mm -hmm. and, and the world knows about what you're doing pretty much every single day so there's two ends of the the social spectrum there <laughs> and this is you know I think you know for for a lot of people and you know our younger readers especially like the idea that you can Snapchat from the top of Everest is no big deal. But back then, like, when did you start taking equipment on there where you could actually share your experiences in real time? Do you remember a specific expedition where suddenly you had a lot, lot more of that kind of equipment? Yeah, the first one was the uh, spring of 99 on the Mallory expedition. Mm. And so Mountain Zone was huge. I mean, they were the website for mountaineering and we were working with Mountain Zone and Eric Simonson and the uh, Everest expedition so the whole Mallory thing and at that point with the tap of a button the news went around the world so that was mm -hmm. the first time that it, we sort of had that, um, that that real life presence and then subsequent expeditions um, it's there but my current view is that I'm happy just to turn that stuff off and just do the trip. And if you create a good story, have it to share afterwards. But mm -hmm. sort of the as you go up the mountain and check in from your cubicle once a day type thing. Um, it still has a point. It still is good. But it's um, when you're on the trip, it's a tremendous amount of effort just to keep your devices charged up and then have to yeah. check in and oh, I've got to put something up on Instagram today. Here's this cute dog. <laughs> Let's talk about that 99 expedition in, to Everest. It, that wasn't your first time to Everest, is that right? That was. That was, that was your first yeah. time. Okay. So that was with about two weeks to go. Dave Hahn, who was a climbing buddy of mine, we'd worked together in Antarctica. He invited me along on the trip for the Mallory and Irvine Research Expedition. And... What was your what was sort of the team's mentality going into that in, in terms of if you were to assess the likelihood that you were going to discover um, either Mallory or Irvine on that trip? Was, 
pretty low chances, I would have thought. It seemed to be a low chance. There wasn't, um, we just didn't know. Uh, the best we had was uh, Tom Holtzell and Audrey Slockout wrote a book about the disappearance of Mallory. And in that, they, they have a theory who the English dead that um, the Chinese climber had seen in uh, 1976 and then shared with the Japanese climber in 1980. And then that news kind of went out to the um, rest of the world. So who might that English dead have been? Because they knew that it was either Mallory or Irvine. And so, but we didn't think that, oh, it's a, it was taken for granted. Um, and part of why PBS Nova, which was the television company that helped out with this expedition, they invited me along because I hadn't been to altitude and then I would have a go at the uh, second step. So if there wasn't a discovery, then we would have the climbing of Everest and the second step as part of the story that would um, hopefully have some relevance to viewers. Mm -hmm. And so walk me through that, that discovery. What, how did that day start out? It was a 1st of May, 99, and we left our camp at about uh, 8,300 meters and then we're moving up. And so it's probably about oh, 8,500 meters that um, I came across the frozen and well-preserved body of George Mallory. It was a very humbling moment to connect with the previous generation and know that they were there with the same goals and aspirations we were to try this mountain. Um, and the second part of the, the expedition was to climb the second step, is that right? And to sort of assess the skills required and as, as a way to, to kind of determine whether those two climbers could have made it to the summit. Yep, that's correct. And so your, your consensus and your, your takeaway was that given the struggles that you had and, and the, the skills as a modern climber that you have now, that you don't think that those two could have, could have made it. Yeah, they were last seen by Noel O'Dell, um, and he saw them moving expeditiously as if to make up for lost time, and then they disappeared into the clouds. So they were on the ridge, the northeast ridge that goes up to the summit. And once you're on the ridge, you're kind of in between the first and second steps, there's not like a an escape ledge, an escape hatch. Sometimes mountains have them that you can just turn the corner and oh, there's like a sidewalk that gets you out of a, a bind. Um, uh, but there isn't one of those up there. So they were committed to doing that. And the um, looking at how the Chinese climbed the second step in 1960 on their first ascent of the mountain from that side, they they use pitons and they, they shoulder stands and all these very specific techniques and those um, those techniques including and equipment the pitons and carabiners were really weren't part of the climbing style and equipment of 1924. Most people are in agreement that it was just beyond what their abilities were to do at that time. So how many times have you have you been back to Everest? Uh, three climbing expeditions, and I've done a bunch of work and volunteer. In the region. Yeah, I mean, but three times that I've had a permit to climb. So, 
And the last was this 2012, is that right? Yep, that was uh, with Nat Geo for the 50th anniversary of the uh, American Ascent. So climbed it via the southeast uh, ridge, the standard route from the south side, without supplemental oxygen. And but the original intent of that expedition had been to do the west ridge, um, and the route was just not in the right shape. Have the conditions up there permanently altered that route? It's hard to say if the changes are permanent. Um, and there's nothing permanent. Everything's in a state of flux there. But the ice is um, on the mountain has melted down to um, really old la layers, the blue, the green, the dark ice that's in there. So um, this year they've had um, a healthier monsoon, so it can... The snow can be replenished quickly, but um, by and large, the high altitude and high latitude mountainous areas on our planet are drying up. They're just too hot, so the glaciers melt, and then there's not enough moisture to replenish the snowpack that creates those glaciers. So is that is this climate change, is it making climbing more challenging, more dangerous? What's the effect for somebody like you out there? If you're a Himalayan climber, it's making it more dangerous, and that's my view on it. Having looked at mountains that I've come back 20 years later, and I just can't believe how much they've melted out, and that, that where it's recently melted out, the rock is not stable. It hasn't had a, a chance to weather out, into, um, and oftentimes it can be quite loose and dangerous. So those lower, now that the Fearn line, that ablation line is moved up 3,000 feet, approximately 1,000 meters, it's really changed the landscape of the mountains. Does it affect the kind of routes and, and, um, and mountains in, that you're choosing to climb? It certainly does. The, yeah. um, many of the routes that were first done in the Care Quorum um, have completely melted out. And so is it a rock climb? Is it, is it 50 degrees scree, which is horrendous to be on, 60 degrees scree, loose gravel, it wouldn't be quite uh, as good, but um, yeah, the I like granite, there's sedimentary rock is, um, it's bad luck in the Himalayas, that's my own mm -hmm. view. <laughs> At 53, I don't need to climb sedimentary rock in the Himalayas, so... <laughs> I know that now. I just go for the granite. And so look up where the granite is, and it's a, it says more solid rock, and the cracks lend itself to better climbing. So, and so that's kind of, um, if I can find granite roots that have an aesthetic line and um, are safe, then I'll certainly set, the, set my sights on that. Do you assess, as you just mentioned, the, the risks of a climb differently now at age, did you say 53? Yeah. Um, then, I mean, obviously, it, it, to some degree you do, but how would you characterize that, that change? In my 30s, I was willing to um, accept objective risk. An objective is you put yourself in a place where snow or ice might fall on you. This is in Himalayan climbing. So I was more willing to accept that risk then. And now it's like, oh, I have to walk underneath that. I really have to question if that's worth it. Um, so places like the Kumbu Icefall, I mean, the thing is, a, it's like a, it's a, a sprung trap. <laughs> so you have to be really careful on it. Um, 
So when you're in there and, and ask yourself, is it worth going through there for what you do? But that's, um, I'm done with Everest, so I don't need to walk through the ice fall anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, but for the people that are in there and climbing on that, it's a tremendous amount of risk that they go through. What, what did you think of Everest? Well, um, sort of most people, climbers are like, well, it's a, it's the end goal of what you want to do. Um, when I was a kid, it was 1975 or 76 was when the southwest face of Everest was climbed. That was sort of the, the be-all and end-all of climbing was the hardest route on the tallest mountain. Mm-hmm. And with the advent of commercial guiding in the mid-90s and how things have changed with that, um, it's certainly less of an adventure and exploration as it was back in the 20s and it certainly as it was in the 50s but it doesn't take away from the mountain and it's a if people want to climb Everest it's um, I'm happy for them it's uh, it, it employs a lot of local people in Nepal and Tibet it's a, a fun and challenging goal and it's certainly um, a better way to it's a better trophy to have than say shooting a rhinoceros or a tiger or a lion or something like that. I mean, if you have to do something really big, go climb a mountain. <laughs> so, um, and obviously, you're you're well familiar with the uh, the plight of the Sherpa workforce up there, and um, especially in the last few seasons, the number of fatalities they've experienced. You've been working with that community for a long time, um, and. How did, how did the Kumbu Climbing Center start? Many of the Sherpa team that we worked with in 99 were from the village of Fortse. And so they, um, well, oftentimes an outfitter will have one team from a particular village. So there'll be um, brothers and cousins and uncles, that sort of connection in there. So this team came from Fortse. And in 2002, Jennifer, uh, my wife and I were walking around leading a trek in the Kumbu. And, climbing ice on the uh, in the afternoons, these are little ice pillars, and just to see how excited the Nepalis were for climbing and came together with the idea to increase the vocational training by doing it in a avocational uh, setting of, um, of what, I mean, you and I like to get outdoors because it's rejuvenative, it makes us feel healthy, it's an antidote to the stressful life we live. For the Sherpa, it's work. And for them, it's a way to earn income. Um, um, their subsistence farming to a degree and, and bartering or the other ways that they, um, they earn a living. But if you guide on Everest, you can make, in a short period of time, fairly good wages by Nepal standards. Um, but the downside of that is that they're doing the risk, taking on more of the risk than the Western clients um, um, they're taking the risk on for the Western clients uh, for the price of um, not very much at the end of the day. And how do you think that the, how, how do we how do we solve that? How do we create more of an awareness among the Western climbers who are paying um, to get their way up and to to I guess shoulder the a reasonable amount of risk for that kind of commercial operation? The Nepali guides are better each year and they're more professional. We have um, through the Kumbu Climbing Center there's an exchange with uh, Denali Grand Teton Yosemite National Park so they're 
learning rescue techniques. They're learning working alongside with guides along that sense. And so when you do see a Sherpa working in the ice fall nowadays, chances are it's got a helmet, um, the proper rescue gear, uh, an avalanche uh, transceiver beacon. They um, have a radio, so they're really up to up to par. But um, if you are trekking and climbing in that region, get to know the people you're working with, um, befriend them. They've probably got a great story, and they're interested in your life as you're interested in their life, and treat them with respect. I mean, that's probably the basis of it. And then realize that you are in the Himalayas to climb a mountain. Climbing a mountain is hard work. It's not. Um, it's not a, a vacation cruise, so don't have unrealistic expectations on the quality of service. Oftentimes, it's sort of this one-upmanship, and then next thing you know, there's um, heated tents with folding chairs and tables at Camp 2. And I mean, you can hunger down in a tent and sit on your sleeping bag and, and eat your top ramen, so it's not, um, it's not essential that you have that level of, of comfort there. It does make the mountain easier, but there is something that balance trying to find that you mentioned climbing uh ever since 2012 w without oxygen i'm curious what your thoughts are about that you know we, we just came out of this uh you know two and a half weeks of, of watching the olympics and there's so much talk of, of doping should we should we consider you know oxygen a ped for mountaineers oh great question <laughs> is it does make a huge difference it it, it um Normal O2 saturation is in the 95 to 99, say, if you're at the altitude you're accustomed to living at. But when you go up higher and higher, you have less and less. And so um, through working with the Mayo Clinic, they monitor us on summit day. And so my O2 sats on the summit were um, around 52%, and then with a heart rate between 130 and 150. So I wasn't doing my body any any benefit at all um, and the fact that I was able to get down with an O2 that low was that I'd been climbing for so long that climbing hiking down that mountain on the snow and the ice it was second nature to me I knew what I how to walk with my crampons so someone that does run out of oxygen and they're not experienced on their crampons they're the ones that um, get into trouble with it but um, yeah whether to make to say you can only climb Everest by fair means, um, uh, probably the, the Nepali tour operators would be like, hey, come on. <laughs> We'd have two clients a year, and, and, and the rest of it would be a lot different. So um, yeah, it is. Um, oxygen is a performance-enhancing drug in, in that capacity when you're on Everest. Um, but it's not the Olympics. It's not professional sports. People are going up there for their own experience. And, um, you know, is someone doing it um, on dexamethasone and oxygen and whatever cocktail of performance enhancing drugs? And I mean, it's their choice, but they're not, there's not national glory hanging upon whether you make maybe for some trips and, and whatnot there is but it's more of an individual thing um, and I would loathe to be the person that has to say okay this is the new standard you have to do it like that so um, do you uh, what you said that, that uh, obviously the commercial guides wouldn't wouldn't be too thrilled about that would limit their 
their clients to about two a year. Like, what, what do you think the percentage of, of climbers who are on Everest who, if that were the standard, would be able to complete the climb? Well, maybe four or five each year at camp. It's not that many. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting because Everest, it's now, it's a commercial mountain. People are, it's part of the seven summits, but there hasn't been adventure climbing on Everest for a while. Um, in terms of doing a new route or trying to do it alpine style. Um, the Kangshung face, um, the route that uh, Stephen Venables and Ed Webster and Paul Tier did alpine style, self-supported from the north side. Those are great examples of, of cutting edge climbing. And today's modern alpinist, if they have an opportunity to go try something in the Himalayas, they're gonna try a new route on a lower elevation peak that has more technical difficulty. So, um, yeah, it would uh, mandatory um, or oxygen rules would would change the guiding dynamic on Everest. Yeah, um, I want to talk about Meru a little bit. So I was looking back at our our first story on that, which you wrote uh, that we titled "Why Am I Here Again?" Um, and obviously, you guys decided to go back and take on the shark's fin again. Um, I remember having a quick conversation with Jimmy Chin, one of your climbing partners, about um, covering the second expedition and just thinking to myself, I, I just cannot understand why these guys are going back. You said in the film, and the, the quote that I see in a lot of places, Mary is the culmination of all I've done and everything I've wanted to do. What what do you do after an expedition like Meru, especially one where you're successful at? You know, a lot of athletes talk about this sort of post-expedition depression that inevitably sets in. Is that is that the case for you as well? Yeah, but immediately afterwards, Jenny can attest to this. I'm crabby and I'm like, it's like he should be happy. You just got done, but when you have something that you put a lot of effort into and then you finish it up, it, it requires um, yeah, that's sort of part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not climbing at the, the the super dangerous ones. I'm climbing peaks that have a, uh, an aesthetic beauty that I find appealing and then go climb those. Is it is it a different feeling like the, the first time, or I guess that was the third attempt. So, you know, coming home after the first and second attempts that were failed versus having completed it, is it a different feeling? Having completed the climb was... Oh, it was uh, when we finally got down to base camp and then from base camp back to Delhi and then Delhi and finally made it home. That's when you when you've when you finish the trip is when you get all the way home and you're there and you're at your um, back home. That's that's finishing the climb. Mm. So that was um, it was nice after having spent three years and having it be on my mind as much as it was and then getting as close as we did in um 2008 and making the right decision um, was uh, it meant it was neat repeating so much of that route and kind of getting close to the second descent so repeating the pitches that we'd led um, three years earlier so that was kind of neat to to see to see what my handiwork and craftsmanship looked like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So. Yeah, I, was, I think about it a lot in terms of, you know, soldiers who've been to war, and obviously we're talking about two completely different things, but 
What is similar, I think, is for soldiers returning, the thing they struggle with is, you know, nobody back home really understands what I just did. And that it must be the same for you returning from a climb like that, that no no, no number of moving pictures or just photographs or explanation will really um, encapsulate what the three of you endured and, and that, it, that it can be uh, futile to even try to share that. Yeah. That's the, the community. When you see your climbing buddies and you know there's that sense of connection that you've been through something as difficult and you can relate to it, I think that's really a key part to it. Yeah. Um, well, one of the bigger climbs you've, you've taken on was, is it Lunagri? Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yep, that's correct. Lunagri, which um, is on the border between Nepal and Tibet. And with this climb, um, you tried, was it last January? Uh, last November. Last November. Um, and you were with uh, a young climber, David Lama, who's only 25. Um, first off, just wondering, how, how do you choose who you'll climb with? With David, we had uh, mutual friends that were like, hey, you guys should get together. You, you, you have a lot of fun. So um, he came over. We climbed in Zion National Park. Um, we did a, a new route there that was kind of fun together. And so, we, yeah, we spent 10 days and got to know each other. And then um, it's sort of what you want to do before you go to a, a Himalayan peak is know your partner and, and, and be in a... A good space together. So yeah, we and then went to Nepal and it was great. We no success, but I go back this year. <laughs> excited for that. So um, so he's twenty five, you know. And I'm sorry to point this out again. You're fifty three. Do you notice a, a a difference when you're climbing with somebody that age? And do you have, you know, once you're on the mountain, do you find that you just settle into your your sort of equal roles or do you find that you have a mentor component um, with that kind of age dif difference, no matter what? Well, I can't. I mean, David's a way better climber than I am. I mean, he free climbs territory <laughs> <laughs> after the bolts were pulled. So yeah, pretty, and won the sport climbing when he was young. So yeah, there's a totally, I mean, he's the modern, really good all round climber. Um, so, but yeah, I'm older than his dad. So I met his dad. And, <laughs> But he doesn't see me as old. He's like, oh, you're like 28. You're just, you're, you're like a 28 year old. So I take that as a, a little bit older than him. But um, yeah, there's some, um, we complement each other well. Um, at, uh, there, there's only so, you can only climb so fast on that type of technical terrain up there. So that is sort of the, we both like that type of climbing. So that's a, a really good, um, a good partnership, really nice guy, and yeah, there's some things that, in terms of little tricks with your stove and small equipment things, and how to set up a base camp that I've shared with him. That he's like, oh wow, this is kind of uh -huh. nice. Little little things that make a difference in a over the period of a one month expedition. And uh, so on that recent climb in last November, and you guys are returning, but you you made the decision to turn back and. Um, has that has that kind of decision making become easier as you've gotten older? Well, it's, I don't know if it's ever easier. It's mostly it's it's um, you you know that you have to do that. It, it it's sort of 
it's obvious that it gets to a certain point that you would just be going into the risk zone way too much mm. and you wouldn't be able to manage that amount of uh, risk so you have to be really really careful yeah uh, last question I just wanted to ask you about just going back to your, your father was you know an international businessman um, was he always supportive of your career oh yeah he was you know they were my mom and dad my father's passed away but um, yeah he loved the mountains and he was always um, he was once I graduated university he was like yeah go out there and <laughs> enjoy life and it wasn't um i think he enjoyed the fact that i was spent as much time in the mountains because something he always loved to do and so he um we would get out and go backpacking um later in his uh, together so uh, the last few years of his life so he always enjoyed that but um yeah it uh you never said you guys time should... to get a real job <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, it was, what I do is plenty yeah. real. <laughs> it's sort of like, like people should find work that they're happy at, and so, uh, and it's whatever you do in life. There's um, if you're doing it for some other reason, is it money or is it to your parents' expectations? You have to ask yourself, um, is it the right thing to do? So, and I think all of us. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're pretty much tuned in. You like outside the publication, you like to get outside, you, you do sports, you do human powered, you, you realize the value of community and family. So um, I think you guys listening, you've already got it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, super thankful to my parents. They always supported me as a kid and got me out as a young, at a young age. And also Jennifer and our three boys, uh, Max and Sam and Isaac and being able to share the outdoors with them has been a real treat and a real um, a generational yeah. thing. So happy for that. Well, Conrad, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, sounds good, Chris. And uh, hopefully um, our, our machines were working. So. Conrad Anker, talking to Chris Kyes. The Outside Interview is produced by me, Peter Fickright, with Robbie Carver doing the actual heavy breathing. I mean, lifting. We are a co-production of PRX and Outside Magazine, and we'll be back in two weeks with a really cool story about what climate change sounds like. I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with the music playing under the credits. We'll see you then.